from Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. You are listening to Global Frequencies. Diverse province, diverse voices. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians, AMC, with funding from the Government of Canada and Government of Newfoundland and Labrador. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. We are starting the afternoon sessions with E for Equity, and our speaker is Dr. Monica Dutt. Monica is the Medical Officer of Health for Central and Western Newfoundland and Labrador and a family physician in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Dr. Dutt is a member of the Decent Work in Health Network and Anti-Racism Coalition of NL. She is currently doing her PhD at McMaster University, focused on public health and labor standards. Everyone, please welcome Dr. Dutt. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to, to be here. I work for Central and Western Newfoundland Labrador, but I never come this way because I normally live in Sydney, Nova Scotia, take the ferry over, and so I stay on kind of that side of the, the province. And I haven't actually been here since maybe 2008, so, so it's really nice to be here, and I'll spend a few days, and the sun's coming out, so that'll be nice. Um, I will say it feels a little odd to be in a room full of people. I don't know if people still have that that feeling <laughs> that I haven't done a non-virtual talk in a in a while, and I kind of miss the like mute button or the, <laughs> the turn off the video button. But I, you all seem like a, a really friendly group, and I really love being here for the morning and you know hearing a lot of the talks. I did miss the very first person who sounded phenomenal, um, but I've really enjoyed the the panels and and the awards and learning more about your your community. Um, so I shouldn't say your community, our community, lots of Western and Central representation too. I'm letting my like nervousness just settle a bit. <laughs> um, I'm also really glad to be able to speak to you about a, a topic that I feel really strongly about, which is the connection between work and labor standards and health. And I'm also going to be talking about that using a, an anti-oppression lens. And I'm not very good at creative titles. So that's kind of what I, I came up with as, as my title. So that's how I'm going to frame what I talk about today. And I know these are all really big topics and it seems like the day's gone be, between kind of really practical advice to kind of bigger ideas. I think I'm a little more on the, the bigger ideas piece of it, but I hope to make connections to some of the, the practical pieces. I was put down as the, the equity speaker, but as I thought about equity, I felt like it's it's hard to separate equity out from kind of all the other topics that are being discussed today and, and anti-oppression more broadly, because the idea of equity is that there is a, an absence of systematic differences based on you know who you are or what group that you're part of. And in order to address that, you need to look at anti-oppression, which is why I, I decided to take that bigger picture. And Debbie kind of gave me free reign to, to talk about what I wanted to talk about. So that's the direction I went. Just in terms of kind of, you've, I know there's probably a land acknowledgement that was already done. I always try to think about my own connection to the, the lands that my ancestors came from and the lands that I'm on now. Uh, my parents were born and grew up in, in India, which was a country that itself was, was colonized. So they lived through the, the British colonization and the, you know, the leaving of the British and all the, the chaos and, and hardship that still has uh, repercussions today. And then they were part of this ongoing 
global colonization when they came to Canada and came to the, the land that I am now on, on the stolen land that, that I work and live on. And I'm normally in, in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and spent a lot of time during the pandemic going back and forth between Central and Western Newfoundland Labrador. And I think one of the gifts that has come out over the last few years was learning about the Indigenous history and, and current issues in, in Newfoundland Labrador. And in particular, being able to learn from Ada Roberts, who's the health director at Mabagek First Nation, and, and Mitch Blanchard, the manager of health and wellness with Halibu First Nation. And, and I've, I've learned a lot. And this is a resource some of you may know, nativeland.ca. And I find it good as a, a starting point. They acknowledge on the site that you know, any information that's on there needs to be corroborated by the people whose lands they are referring to. But they look at treaties and languages and you can look at wherever you are in the world and, and learn more about that history. And I, I really just like this graphic because it reminds me to think about the connections that go far beyond kind of colonial provincial borders and think about kind of the deep culture and history that span the land masses that, that we all are on right now. In terms of disclosures, I, I've been kind of a worker, I've been in management, I've been an employer, I'm not currently one, and I, I know many of you are, are in that type of role right now, but what I, I do see is the, the health impacts of, of labor standards, of workplaces on, on people's health. The opinions are my own, I'm just putting that out there in case anyone says, you know, Central Health said this, um, so I put that out as my own opinion, um, but it all comes from kind of a public health perspective and recognizing that I speak from a position of privilege as a health provider and I don't speak for um, people or communities and the two organizations I mentioned in my bio that, that inform a lot of this talk. And then also as part of a, a disclosure, I know this topic has been talked about before and for some is probably fairly basic for others. It may be something newer to, to think about, but I, I use this um, graphic, which is, you know, simplistic in some way, but also I think makes some really important points. And it's around this idea of intersectionality, which was a, a term that was brought forward by Kimberly Crenshaw, a black feminist, based on the idea that the feminist movement is often now and in the past has often been led and speaks for mainly, you know, white women, people who are of higher income. And, and she put forward this idea that black women have a very specific uh, experience that needs to be acknowledged in, in feminism. And it's been brought in to consider the many different ways that we all have different identities that shape our identities in a, in a very unique way. It's not that, you know, being brown skinned is one type of oppression plus being a woman is another and you can just add them together. It's a very specific experience that, that we all have based on our, our different identities. And then graphics like this kind of point to the fact that the closer you are to the center of this circle, the more power you tend to have in, in society, the more you whether intended or not, have domination over other groups and people. And so I think of myself and I think about the fact that I tend to be closer to the center, someone who speaks English as a first language, someone who's higher income, um, who is considered able-bodied by, by standards of what is a, an ideal body in our society. And so I will come back to this, this concept a little bit later. And this is kind of a doctor thing. I don't know if other people did this in their presentation, but we always have to have objectives so that you can tell me at the end if we actually met those objectives. So I just put that in. Um, so talking a bit about anti-oppressive practice, 
considered the impacts of labor standards on health and considered approaches for, for dealing with complex societal labor issues. And the picture on the right is from Migrant Rights Network. And there's kind of been ongoing for many years and in particular in the last little while, a lot of advocacy around status for all, given the federal government is looking at how to um, change citizenship or change, allow more options for permanent residency. Um, and so many are advocating for not leaving anyone behind in that process. So I thought I'd just start with a, just a definition of what I mean when I talk about oppression, which is the use of power to disempower, marginalize, silence, or otherwise subordinate one social group or another, often in order to further empower and or privilege the oppressor. And I put in a, a photo of a, a poster of Masa Amini, and I'm sure people are many, many people are following the, um, the protests, the uh, uprising in, in Iran. And just to make the point that, you know, all of these issues are, are global, I'll be focusing more on our, our local context, but especially when it comes to, to labor and workplaces, we are part of a, a global society and trends in one place, for example, talking about, you know, immigration to Newfoundland Labrador has implications for, you know, people in other countries and thinking about, for example, you know, a, a health initiative has been to lately to recruit nurses from India. So I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the, the ethics of doing things like that in terms of, you know, are you destabilizing other places? I, I fully support people in being able to, to move freely and immigrate and go to where they want to. But it's also that the active bringing in of people that I think, you know, does need discussion and, and consideration. I just threw that in. That wasn't a central health opinion. That was my opinion. <laughs> So I thought I would start with a story, and it wasn't a story I, I planned to tell, but then when I was talking to, to Debbie, she had mentioned that she had seen me uh, tweet about this story, and that was something that had caught her eye. And so I thought I would uh, share the, the story with you. So this is a story about when I was coming back from the U.S. a few months ago, and I was on a plane with my, with my son, and that overhead call that I think a lot of doctors dread said, you know, is there a physician on the plane? And and my first thought was, I, I can't go. I'm a medical officer of health. I don't normally see patients. What am I going to do? And I also do family medicine, but I don't do emergency care. So my, my first thought was nervousness. But my son was beside me. He's like, Ma, Ma, you have to go. And I was like, oh, okay. He still thinks I can do this, so, so I do need to go. Um, I probably would have gone anyways. But when I got there, there was myself and, and thankfully uh, another physician who had stepped up and we were both um, ends up of a South Asian background and both both brown skinned, which is something I, I noted when I, I saw her. But then, of course, we quickly focused on the, the passenger who needed care and it was someone actually who was quite sick and it was kind of nerve wracking because we were too close to Toronto to divert, but far enough away that it was a really stressful 45 minutes. Um, so I was really thankful when we did arrive in Toronto and the paramedics came onto the plane or at least one paramedic came onto the plane to to take this passenger to the hospital because that is where they they need to go and then this is when this this incident happened that I I tweeted about that is the first and maybe only thing I've ever tweeted not that many people pay that much attention but it actually got you know a lot of response and and interest 
And in the plane, what happened was all the passengers were advised to, to stay sitting. So really, it was just me and this other physician standing with the, the airline attendant. The paramedic came on and the attendant started to say, you know, there were two physicians who helped with the patient during the flight. And without missing a beat, the paramedic looked around and said, oh, where are they? And in that moment, I didn't think too much about it because, of course, we were all focused on the care of the person who needed to get to the hospital. But afterwards, I did reflect on it a bit. It's hard because I'm making assumptions around what this person was thinking. But what went through my head was thinking that his first thought was the physicians weren't standing there. Where are they? He needs to, to find them. And he didn't see the, the parts of me that usually do give me privilege in this world, which is kind of unearned benefits that I really don't do anything to, to deserve. But in that moment, he saw, you know, two brown skinned women standing beside a patient or a passenger who was also brown skin. And my thought is that he kind of put us all together and we must all be family. And I don't think he would have had the same reaction if there were two white men who were, who were standing in the, the aisle. And in a best case scenario, we would have debriefed, we could have talked about this, you know, understood what each other was thinking, but we only had those few minutes. And so that was what I was left with. And so what I thought about that as is, uh, you know, a microaggression, which is this idea that, you know, every day there are comments and actions that subtly and often unconsciously or intentionally express a prejudiced attitude towards members of a marginal group, such as someone who is who's racialized. And, you know, we talk about microaggressions, but then I think it's always important to to put that into a context that they come from a bigger system. They come from a way of thinking about certain people and groups that allow these kind of daily uh, activities to happen. And and I tell the story not for any kind of sympathy, because for the most part, you know, I, I don't feel like I, I have to deal with that a lot daily, but I put it out there just to think about how our daily interactions um, can impact people even without thinking about it. And so I come back to, to this slide and just encourage people to take a moment to look at the wheel and think about where you sit and then maybe put yourself into different scenarios. Think about how you are on this wheel might affect your reaction if, say, you get pulled over by a police officer and you are waiting for that person to come to your door. If you are a, a black woman, you may have a very different reaction than, say, someone who is you know, brown-skinned and undocumented or someone who may be a white male. And then on the other side, as a police officer, knowing what we know about how people are racially profiled and, and targeted in different ways, you may have different feelings about the, the person that, that you are pulling over. And I think we can apply that in any kind of situation. There was a lot of um, really great information in the panel around jobs and applications and processes that where you on this wheel is going to impact what job you even think about applying for. And people reading those applications are going to read them a certain way, depending where you are on here. And then that all connects into this idea of privilege as a as a backpack, which again, is not a, a new idea. It was put out by Peggy McIntosh a few decades ago. I really, there's someone really lovely who keeps nodding and I, I it's really giving me energy. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, but it's this idea that we all have this backpack and we don't feel it, we don't see it, but we all have a backpack and in it is special provisions, maps, passports, keys, things that might help us open doors. And so some people have a lot in their backpack and it's 
it's the type of thing that you don't realize is there because the options are just obvious. You know, I just assumed I would go to university. People assume they can apply for certain jobs, they can go to certain places, they can enter certain spaces, and you're able to because you have these pieces in your in your backpack, whereas others have very few keys in their backpack. And again, it might not be something that's even consciously thought about. It's just you know that you have these types of options, and it would not include things like going on to post-secondary education or applying for a certain job or even living in a house that has plumbing that actually works. It's just that those are the doors that are open to you, and it can be very different. And I'm going to connect that to one more. This is my last like theoretical piece of this, but one more idea that I found, again, really helpful. It's by a uh, she's actually a physiotherapist, Stephanie Nixon, and she put together this idea of a coin model of privilege, drawing on kind of many other scholars that have done this type of work. And so what she talks about is this system of inequality, which we are all living within. We are in the society. We are part of this system of inequality. And she talks about the bottom of the coin and all the different groups that are often thought of on the bottom of the coin. And we have all kinds of words that are often used. I know in public health, we often talk about vulnerable or marginalized or priority populations. And all of those terms make me cringe because no one is born any of those labels. They are made to be in those positions because of this system of inequality. But yet we often focus on that bottom of the coin. You know, how do we do things to, quote, help certain groups you know, become better, to become, you know, part of certain workplaces and, you know, become, you know, access other types of education. But we don't often talk about the top of the coin. There's often not even a, a word for that that we, we use because we don't kind of target, say, our public health programs towards the top of the coin. There's not really a, a word that we use to describe that. But if we only think about the bottom of the coin and not acknowledge that in order for that to exist, there needs to be this top of the coin. And until we you know, work across and in solidarity and connect these two sides of the coin, we can't actually get rid of this, this system of inequality. Which leads me to this quote from a, a piece by Tanya Kanas, and I'm sorry I didn't write down the, the article that it was from, but it's part of an article that a board that I'm on for the Cabot Trail Writers Festival in, in Cape Breton, we had started a, a process of looking at what does anti-oppressive practice look like in, a, in an arts festival, and, and we read a, a number of different articles, and this was one of them. And she talks about diversity being a white word. It seeks to make sense through the white lens of difference by creating, curating, and demanding palatable definitions of diversity, but only in relation to what this means in terms of whiteness. And I think of this quote as kind of showing what it looks like when you only look at something from the top of the coin. And I know we've had some, there's been some discussion today, even today around the language we use that when we're talking about diversity, you know, diversity in comparison to what it's often a, a norm around, you know, whiteness, maleness, heterosexist, all of those pieces when we talk about diversity. And I, I've, I have seen today, though, it's, it's often used in a, in a way that acknowledges we all have different backgrounds. And I think that's, you know, a much better way to use it. But often it is used in a way that only talks about people diverse as being different from, from the norm. And even words like inclusion, you know, who is doing that, including who is making those decisions? Because I think even in, in some of the conversations today, it's still about kind of bringing people in, whereas it's not, you know, people making those decisions themselves. They're being brought into a process 
And then we have to think about what are they being brought into? Because even if people are brought into a system, if you're just perpetuating the same inequities through that system, it doesn't really change anything. And I know, you know, all of you are in different places. I've, I've talked to many of you and are, there's some really great work happening and, and the panelists talked about that too. So I think it's all of us who are on this journey, all of our organizations and workplaces are on different journeys. And I think, you know, we're all, the important thing is we're all asking these questions about what do we do that causes harm unintentionally or not. So moving on from kind of the theoretical side, I wanted to give a, a few kind of concrete examples. And I am going to speak a bit more right now around healthcare and public health because that's that's what I, I know best. Also connecting to the fact that people who are healthier often work in supportive workplaces that contribute to their health. So uh, they, they work together. Healthier people and healthier workplaces, I think, are, are very connected. But these are all um, situations where biases and oppression by individuals and organizations have clearly impacted people's health. And I, I did want to just give a a little warning that I was going to tell a story related to some some harms that are done particularly to people of Indigenous background. So I just wanted to, to say that in case that is something that may have kind of a personal impact on, on anyone in the room. A few examples in healthcare that I just wanted to, to talk through. Often people who are, are transgender, they face discrimination when accessing healthcare. This is a quote, I can speak from my own personal experience that one of the most challenging parts of my coming out process has been access to healthcare. People are often misgendered, they're looked at differently, um, they're treated differently by, by healthcare providers. I have a, a practice where I have a number of patients who are transgender and, and I hear many examples of this and even within my own practice, it's been a constant learning process for me because I need to be better to be able to serve the needs of my patients. Pain control is a, another example where there's kind of systemic bias in, in healthcare. There's been studies, for example, looking at how physicians tend to undertreat pain in patients who are black. It's this kind of embedded sense that not a, a a lower level of pain control is needed because pain can be tolerated better. So it may not even be explicitly said. People may not describe that, but that's what happens often in practice. Same with pain that, that women may express. Um, there have been a number of studies. This is one where men and women reported similar pain scores, but women were less likely to receive medications. They tended to wait longer to get those medications. And so these are just a few of the examples where even in a, a profession where we're, you know, setting out ideally to help people, we often can do harm. And then I was going to tell two stories. I, I'm sure people are probably familiar with the, well, I hope people are familiar with the stories of the, of the two people that I'll, I'll talk about. One of them is, is Joyce Eshaquan, who was a 37-year-old Atikamekw woman who died on September 28, 2020 in Quebec. We just passed the, the two-year anniversary of her death. And what she had done is, as she was in the hospital, as she realized that she was not being treated well by the healthcare staff, she started Facebook living her experience. And what that video showed was her in distress and being abused by the healthcare workers who were supposed to be caring for her. And they said terrible racist comments, they ignored her pain, they ignored her requests. And she died at the end of that time. So she essentially videotaped the last few minutes of her life. And this is the type of situation where often people point to the, the individuals. They say, you know, these are, you know, the bad apples 
They say things like, this isn't who we are. And I always have a problem with that because, of course, we need to address the individual actions. Things like that are, are never acceptable, but they never come out of a, a vacuum. And the premier at that time said there was no systemic racism in Quebec, talked about, um, yes, these actions were wrong, but they don't represent anything bigger than that. And this is despite community members who for years had talked about um, not being treated well in the hospital. And I think in a province where the fact that a premier would, would deny systemic racism when really there is no institution untouched by racism attests to how deep the barriers are to be able to change some of these, um, some of these systemic issues. And then one other story that, that really stays with me is, is about Brian Sinclair. So Brian Sinclair was a 45-year-old Indigenous man and a resident of Winnipeg who used a wheelchair. And in 2008, he died in the waiting room of the most comprehensive emergency department in Manitoba. And he had been seen at an urgent care clinic not long before that. His family physician, the, the family physician he saw, determined the pain he was having meant that he needed to have his catheter changed. They weren't able to do it in the clinic. They said he needed to go to the hospital. He wasn't keen to go by ambulance, so they sent him in a, in a taxi with a letter from the physician explaining what his situation was. And as you kind of learn about what happens next, I, I kind of feel like, you know, your heart sinks further and further because what happened when he got to the hospital was that person after person from the first staff who spoke with them to the nurses to the security guards, they failed to follow proper processes and they ignored or dismissed his progressively worsening condition. And because they felt like they knew him from before, they knew that he was underhoused, they assumed he was drunk and that he just needed to, quote, sleep it off. And so even with escalating concern from patients in the waiting room, which is maybe the one light in the story, in that patients tried to bring attention to him and eventually a woman who had come back for a second time and realized this man was still sitting here and hadn't been seen yet, it wasn't until he had died that he was actually brought in for, for care for CPR that, of course, was, was not useful. And he had spent almost 36 hours in that emergency department. And so what had started as an almost certainly treatable condition eventually led to his death. And 150 patients had come into the ER and been triaged in the time that Brian Sinclair had been sitting there. And this, the story... You know, it's been told in many places, but this is how it's told from the Brian Sinclair Working Group, which was tasked with making recommendations to address racism in healthcare, given that systemic racism was seen as a primary factor that led to his death. And I think about this story because, you know, no worker in that hospital went to work that day intending to do any kind of harm. But as a group, they collectively without you know, communicating it to each other, collectively perpetuated that racism that is part of any institution. And the reason I, I keep these two terrible stories in my mind is, has been articulated by a, a good friend who's named Desmond Cole, and he's a, an activist based in Toronto, and he wrote a book called The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power. And he talks about how he can't walk away from anti-racist work because he lives the racism daily. He doesn't have that, that option. So I try to keep that in mind 
when I could walk away from, and I do, I'm sure I do, I know I do walk away from many situations where you could be more vocal, you could be more active. But I think about him and him saying, you know, it's just not possible for him to walk away. So some of that urgency, I feel like, you know, it needs to kind of be part of our workplaces, part of our, our culture. And all of these individual stories, they translate into, you know, trends we see across communities, which is often what I look at in public health. We look at kind of bigger picture information about communities. And just in terms of how that, that translate into, into bigger trends, for example, I think we all know some of the, the trends that we saw through the, the pandemic. Often Ontario, I'm using a few Ontario examples because unfortunately there's a lot more data to be able to analyze because so many people were, were impacted. So when you look at the workers most impacted by the pandemic, they were the people who were called essential workers, which often meant they were um, lower paid, often racialized often not working in very good conditions and at much higher risk of acquiring COVID-19. And these were the people that were more likely to, to die from COVID-19 in the end, even more than as much as in healthcare, we were extremely worried and took lots of precautions. We had a lot of those supports to be able to, to do so most of the time. Um, definitely there were challenges with that also. And you can see that when you just even look at across a population. So this is a, a map of the greater Toronto area. And just as, as one example, again, because they have so much information that they can draw on, unfortunately, the red on the kind of outskirts of these areas tend to be uh, parts of the, the greater Toronto area where people tend to be racialized, tend to be black, tend to be newcomers, tend to be refugees, tend to be working in these essential workplaces, and also were the people that were most likely to be hospitalized and die from COVID-19. Whereas in contrast, on the right side, this is from 2021, but you can see that the center, which is darker, is where there were much higher vaccination rates. So that tended to be the area that tended to be wealthier, tended to be whiter, um, tended to be people who could work from home. And so there's a number of reasons why there is that, that contrast. But I think just looking at inequities that played out in the pandemic, there, there were just many, many injustices that occurred. I did just want to throw this in because we are trying to, I shouldn't say we, there is a researcher who's trying to um, get a bit more data around experiences of COVID-19 in Newfoundland, Labrador. And I said I would put in a, a plug for her study. Um, Thanishwari is, she, she lives in St. John's and her contact information, information is there. So if you did have COVID-19 during the pandemic, which I, I assume probably quite a few people in this room did, um, she is looking for a few more people to interview. And if you do know people, especially Especially those who may have felt challenged to be able to meet public health requirements or, you know, were challenged in their workplaces, say without paid sick days, she would be very interested in talking with you. So just to connect this a bit to, to workplaces, and I think some of this was described already and, and really in a lot of detail, so I don't think I need to kind of add a lot to that. But this is an example which I'm sure people have seen, but what I hadn't realized is the studies that look at um, people who have names, who are applying for jobs, who have names who may not be considered white names, um, are less likely to be hired. But I hadn't realized quite how many studies have showed this over how many years. And that's what really struck me. So from 2009, 2014, 2017, you know, it's study after study that's showing the same thing. And so I, I just put that out as part of 
the HR processes that that we need to have in place, and many more were were um, noted during the the panel. But you know, the fact that this is still occurring, you know, 20 years into doing research is is a bit disheartening. But it also means that we need to be doing more to be able to to change that. There's also other examples. This is from St. John's recently, which I, I'm sure is a story people have heard around um, young women who were at work and were threatened um, and felt that violence in their workplace and felt unsafe there. And so at the Anti-Racism Coalition of Newfoundland Labrador, and I'm sure ANC hears many of these, these stories of people who feel unsafe in their workplaces with their coworkers within their workspace, as well as from people who they interact with, particularly in, in service industries. And then one last example, again, that, that Arcanel has been quite involved in is around access to healthcare, which I think is also a, an issue for, for workers. We have many workers who come here from, from outside of Canada who fall through gaps, who don't qualify for healthcare. And I think that both, of course, has a personal impact on them. It impacts their ability to be able to, to contribute to their, their workplace. And for those who are tied to their employer for access to healthcare, it makes it even more challenging for them to, to speak out about that because they don't want to lose their job, their work, um, their, their healthcare. And so we have seen that, you know, things can change. We have seen that people who have come from Ukraine were offered MCP on arrival, which I think is fantastic, which shows that we can do this. We can offer MCP to people who are residents of this province. And I think we need to do that for, for all. And at the time, I found this quote interesting, and I, I, I did, couldn't find the spoken quote. I had watched the, the video of it, talking about not being aware of systemic, the, the Minister of Health at the time, talking about not being aware of systemic gaps in MCP coverage. And I put this in not to target any particular individual, but I personally think we need to start with the premise that there is a systemic gap in whatever system, whatever institution, whatever policy, and we need to, to find it and deal with it rather than saying that there is no systemic gap. And then I, I just briefly wanted to touch on kind of broader workplace policies. And I'm not sure how many people and how many organizations here would fall under, you know, needing to, to look at some of these pieces in particular, but I don't want to assume because there, there may well be. So I did speak with the Workers Action Network of Newfoundland Labrador, as well as the Better Way Alliance, and their recommendations actually are, are quite in line with each other. So talking with Workers Action Network, the pieces that they most emphasized are around fair wages, which I think is fairly clear. We do have living wage calculations for Newfoundland Labrador. So if, if people aren't paying those wages within their organizations, they, they definitely should be looking at that. We all know a minimum wage is not enough to actually have a, a decent life. Uh, paid sick days is another piece, and and I have to say, as a public health person, it's it's it hurts my heart that as one of the kind of main public health measures of the pandemic, we have not had kind of legislated required paid sick days for people because it just whether it's pandemic or day to day life, people need to be able to to stay home when they are sick or injured or take care of themselves or their kids, whatever they need to do with those days. And I didn't actually realize till I talked to, to Mark with Workers Action Network that in Newfoundland Labrador, I knew we had seven unpaid sick days that are, that are required, which doesn't change people needing to decide between do you stay home and lose your income or go to work sick. 
But if you take that eighth day, it constitutes a, a broken service. So if you needed a certain amount of, of days of work to qualify for different benefits, you are, are back at day one. So again, often labor standards are the minimum, but they're not enough to actually support people. And then the last piece is, is scheduling. So again, I'm not sure how many people in this room this might apply to, but just the fact that it's been brought up by, by workers in, in the province in this area, that scheduling is a, a significant issue for them, not having consistent hours, not having enough hours, not having enough notice of their hours. So if that applies to, to any of your workplaces, it's something that I think would, would be very much um, supported by, by workers. And so I, I was thinking I'm not like... 10 practical tips person that a lot of people today have been, which I've, I've really appreciated, but I wanted to just kind of come to an end shortly around just some questions to consider. I think it sounds like a lot of you are already thinking about these, these questions and these types of issues. And if you haven't, you know, there's never any better time to start than, than now. And if you have already started, think about, you know, whether your actions are, are truly addressing the, the power imbalances that are embedded in, in all of our organizations. And if you have models that are working like today, it's been great to see them shared, to build those relationships and have us all learn from each other. So I think considering how our, our positionality influences the policies and behaviors in our, our workplaces, because we bring our, our history. I did hear a bit of the first speaker this morning talking about her history. That shapes, you know, how any of us walk into any room and how we interact with people. It will shape the, the policies that we put into place. It will shape the behaviors that we put out, that, that others, how we interact with others. Think about the day-to-day -day practices in your workplaces and, and again, the panel talked about kind of different areas that can be, whether it's your, your hiring practices, your HR policies, even how you run a, a meeting, you know, things like meetings can be incredible barriers for people because some people know exactly what rules they need to follow for a meeting, whereas others may not. And it's the separation between those who have been kind of part of a system that runs meetings in a certain way and others who may not be familiar with that. And this whole idea of kind of encouraging creativity, you know, is part of that having an anti-oppressive organization or anti-oppressive practices, part of what you're seeing as, as, cult, as fostering creativity, which I assume by all of you being here, it definitely is part of your thinking. And then just thinking a bit more broadly, we all have often a, a place where we can influence broader policies in our local municipalities, in our province. And I think that's something we should, we should always be thinking of because as much as we can make kind of changes at an individual level, often they do need that provincial support. And so I just finished by kind of, again, thinking about how our own knowledge, attitudes and perspectives shape shape ourselves, shape the, the workplaces that we're in, how it shapes our dynamics in our families, our communities, and how that shapes the policies and practices that may actually, may both be supporting people, but others that may be doing harm. And in the ideas outline, it talked about needing to move beyond hiring a diverse, a diverse workforce, which is true. But I, I feel like all the good points have been made already. But as someone said, that takes deliberate effort. And it means breaking down the existing power structures that exist in, in all of our organizations. It means creating relationships that don't exist right now across groups and across workplaces. And it means being uncomfortable often, especially for anyone who is in any kind of position of authority or power. 
and, and that's okay. I think when you feel uncomfortable, that's a, that's a good thing because it means that you're trying to unlearn and learn. And so I'm leaving on this photo of my favorite place. Well, if I, maybe if I knew St. John's better, it could be my favorite place, but it still is Cape Breton or Unamagi. And a quote that I, I like by Trisha Hershey, and she talks about rest being a, a form of resistance, which is just this idea that as we are all doing very hard and challenging work, it is also a form of resistance to, to care for ourselves and care for, take the time to make sure that we have the energy to, to do this work. I will say, I always feel like questions, there's always a lot of knowledge in the room. So I'm also a big fan of if other people have things to answer, please do. I don't know how much knowledge I have, but thank you for the implication. Um, thank you for your presentation. It was really wonderful. Um, I know a lot of us at this table are from creative organizations. So the public health is not really my realm at all. I'm not really familiar with it. But I'm interested today, there's been a lot of talk about like, the emphasis on dialogue and creating conversations as being this important piece to unlearning and moving forward and creating these spaces. And I'm wondering how you envision um, like a practical approach to moving beyond the dialogue and beyond the conversations, like to apply it. Do you know what I mean? I do. And that's, you know, I have... I was trying to, I know one of my asks was to have like something like that, like here are the next steps. And I just, I feel like it's so different in different workplaces and different contexts. So in different organizations, I'm part of like taking stock of where you are and setting, you know, there was discussion about the accountability, like what are, where are we trying to get to? What are our timelines? Where are we trying to go? So I feel like that's probably the biggest step. Like as an organization, it sounds like you've started that work. Have you said, you know, this is where we want to go? And it's not never going to be a finished process, but over the next few months, over the next year, like what do we want to change? What do we want to see at the end of that? That's probably the biggest piece because I think a, a risk sometimes is you can spend a lot of time talking and having meetings and, you know, consulting and, and doing all of that um, and not taking action. But that being said, the relationship piece, I think, is one of the biggest parts of it, that unless you feel that connection with the other groups and people and organizations, you're not going to be able to make those those changes. And I, I work in, you know, a health authority, and I think a lot of work is done to try to make those connections. But then at the same time, it's there's always that hierarchy and, and part of me wants to just get rid of that hierarchy and how do we do that and what does that look like? And you're almost trying to imagine like a whole new system, which we must, I don't know, unless we get rid of capitalism, we can't quite do, but within those confines, you know, yeah, what is this, what do we want it to be and how are we getting there? I don't know. Do others have thoughts? I, I feel like that could be a good, a good group question. Um, I actually have a two-part question. <laughs> so what struck me, a lot of things struck me here today, but um, I was particularly interested in when you mentioned um, names in applying for jobs, that someone with uh, a foreign-sounding name might be less likely to be called for an interview. And now, if, if we go on the flip side to that, uh, say somebody in computer sciences, they could be, you know, stereotyping and say a lot of Asians or South Asians are in that field. So when employers see an Asian or a South Asian name, they may say, wow, you know, I've got to hire this person. 
I've got to have them coming for an interview. And say if you have um, a white employee, say, they might think, oh, well, because this person is Asian or South Asian, that's why they got the job. And, and you know, I've, I've heard these types of things. So, um, you know, for me, I would like to know how not only does the employer deal with that when they're confronted, but how do you explain to your staff that maybe you see value in this person because of the experience, because of what they've studied and from this person's experience too, the employers. So just to clarify that with the staff and the other question is, or the other statement is, what is your favorite resource lately for this kind of work that you do? Thank you. There may be others who have like HR specific recommendations. So I, I will ask about that in a minute. But when you were talking, I was thinking about kind of the downsides of having good stereotypes about people and groups too. So that idea of a you know a model minority that certain groups are are smarter, better, and that happens often with people of South Asian background that there may be assumptions made about you know them being you know they're going to be the doctors, they're going to be the engineers, or whatever group it is. So I think that is also also harmful because often people don't recognize that there can also be racism against some of those groups. It also divides, it's a way of dividing different groups and people so that there's more kind of a sense of competition. Like there's lots of say anti-black racism within South Asian communities. There's all kinds of layers that come into that, which is a kind of much bigger, bigger discussion. Um, I think it's probably from the HR side, if others had thoughts, just in terms of what practices make the most sense in terms of what's current evidence. Is it better to have non-identifying you know, CVs? Is it better to have identifying, but in a culture where people are appreciating these different experiences and backgrounds rather than putting people into boxes because of those experiences and backgrounds? Um, I don't know. Does anyone else have comments about how, how they've kind of dealt with that aspect of trying to ensure Vincent great great to see you hi <laughs> uh, we've typically only connected on uh, yes. through uh, uh, zoom um, so uh, it's kind of a long story so I've 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 managed anywhere from three to 350 people um, and I've been fortunate enough that my name is Vincent Estic and uh, so getting interviews never been been an issue for me uh, I've had friends, that, however, that have had more ethnic names and very talented, very you know uh, smart people, and they but they've had difficulties getting getting that, that that initial interview solely just because of the names in terms of what we were talking about. Um, at one of the organizations that I started a number of years ago, uh, when we were four people, it was easy not to look at uh, a name, but to definitely look at the qualifications, what they brought to the table, et cetera, uh, where they were located, and so forth. As we grew to 300 and change people, the one thing that I noted was exactly that, was that management began to look at staff based on, and hire based on name. And then name was based on role within the organization, so engineering, um, support, etc. So as, a, as, a, as an owner of the company and a founder, what I started to do was intercept resumes. And I would remove the names off the resumes, the titles, the names off the resumes. So you only had an opportunity to look through their skills, experience, et cetera, um, not even their schooling, because I removed most of that, that work as well. Uh, that's one of the ways in which 
uh, you know, we did it as an organization because I was all I, I've been, um, you know, uh, I, I've, I've experienced it myself. Uh, the other thing as well is that we need to be careful. Um, I'm a little older than most of some of the people in the room. Uh, so going back 30 years, um, you know, when I worked uh, at IBM, by example, they had uh, this initiative, this um, it was a um, equality, racial equality initiative and whatnot. So they were actually paid to hire people of color, uh, minorities and, and so on. The issue that um, that arose was that people in the organization that were non-ethnic, non-BIPOC, they looked, uh, they kind of looked down at you. They perceived that you received the job solely because of the color of your skin and they discounted you immediately. Uh, those are the types of things that, you know, we need to be careful of here as well. Uh, diversity, equity, all of these things that we're talking about. Um, organizations, are they going out and they're, are they just looking for to support this new, I call it a trend because it's always been there from my perspective. Um, but as a minority owned business owner here in Newfoundland for the last 10 years, my issue is a little different. People, do, there's a lot of people who do not want to work for someone of my color and I'm fine with that. Right. Um, but there's the flip side to that as well is that when I do hire within my, with, within my own, own community, they expect different treatment and I don't play that game. So, you know, it's a double edged sword irrespective uh, of the, you know, it doesn't matter what side you're, you're standing on. Uh, it, it is a double-edged sword, and we, we've got to be extremely careful uh, in terms of how we approach it, right? So, I was thinking about one resource that popped to mind that kind of connects, because I've been taking a lot more uh, labor studies courses and thinking about labor and health much more in detail. Just one podcast that I think is pretty accessible. It's called Be Labored, and it's by um, a woman named Sarah Jaffe, who also wrote a book called Work Won't Love You Back, and I've I, I really liked her podcast and, and her book just talking about kind of the systems that create our, our workplace and what what we need to change about them to, to make them be more supportive environments. So that's the first thing that, that pops to mind. There's lots of public health specific stuff that may not be as, as interesting. And even just organizations like ARCA and the Anti-Racism Coalition of Newfoundland Labrador, ANC, like just I think those relationships lead to more resources. So that's also been a, a great place for me to learn. Black Health Alliance, yes, absolutely. Okay, all right, so this is on now. First of all, Dr. Dutt, um, great presentation, I must say. Um, I was taking few notes as well as uh, I work in a similar field, which is uh, presentation field, not as a medical doctor. I'm brown too. Um, my full name is Sanchita Chakraborty. I work as a diversity officer with the Association for New Canadians, and my boss is standing right there, right behind me, backing me up. Debbie and my wonderful colleague there, Renata, helping me sometime to take the notes as well. Um, I have a question one of our online viewers has sent. Uh, I thought this would be a great time to ask you this question that uh, uh, the question is employers often misunderstand equality and equity. Sometimes newcomers might need different requirements to integrate into the system. What advice would you give to an organization to encourage equity? Yeah, I'm sure people have seen that graphic around kind of equality versus equity and the people who are on the different sized, um, I guess, boxes trying to look over at a, at a game and equality is when everyone is treated the same way. Equity is when they have you know, different size boxes to be able to get them to see over. And then you get into things like liberation by just getting rid of the whole 
fence and then someone talked about dancing versus being invited like you're out on the field with the players there's all different ways of looking at it yeah i think it, we are still often stuck in equality of treating everyone the same way because this is our policy this is the way we do things um, but say with with hiring it may mean again like has been talked about you're thinking of experiences in a in a different way than just what is on a a CV and not only that you are supporting the people who have applied for that job if you do hire them you know what do you do to make sure that they feel supported in that that environment i think often there's kind of the statement that says we encourage you know people to be applying but then what does it actually mean does it mean that you're changing how you consider you know different people applying and you consider their background in a a different way um in public health we talk about kind of universal programs and targeted programs. So I think you could think about something similar that sometimes universal programs are the right way to go that in the end it benefits everybody. So thinking about like a universal basic income, like that could be something that could have some benefit to everyone but will definitely support and bring people up to a basic income of in in particular ways where some things you really do need to be targeted. So I think thinking about it in that way in in your in your business as your employer are we trying to do things that will benefit everybody i'm i'm rambling a bit cuz now i'm thinking about also in in countries that have less inequality they overall tend to be healthier so it's that idea that if we are kind of having everyone at the same level it's it's better for everybody in some ways but you need to work to to get there so right now we have so much inequity we are far from anything of that of that type so Ah, oh, that's that's a an all-over answer. But yeah, I think it's that idea of if you are striving for equity, what are the pieces you are putting in place that truly do support certain groups? And again, it's it's who's making that decision, which is problematic in the first place. I mean, someone in power is deciding how to support a specific group or person, but that's where we are right now until that person is the one also making decisions. We do need to look at a an approach that encourages equity. Well, this is this is great. Debbie, am I allowed to ask another question? Okay, that was online viewers' question. This is my question now. <laughs> and whew, okay, so as I just mentioned, Dr. Dutt, again, thank you very much for that answer. The previous answer you just gave, quite um, um, simplistically, you you made it very clear that you know, uh, equity equality is not the same um, platform they're standing on. Um, so as I just mentioned, mentioned as a facilitator myself in this idea field, um, I, I did find that pyramid of unlearn, listen, um, reflect, and act. Yeah. Yeah. The act part is, I find, even the easier part, Dr. Dutt. Yeah. I found the foundation of that pyramid, the unlearn part, is the hardest one. And especially, I'll tell you, what I mean by that, I can read the question, what I just wrote down. Um, I see in various communities, including some of my own, and by saying some of my own, please don't get offended that I'm creating them versus us. No, maybe I'm meaning my mom and dad in this, you know, <laughs> uh, my own. And, and you, know, you know, if you're coming from a Bengali culture, like I come from, you too. They, and you can feel my pain. My mom is the decision maker, not my dad in the family. In, in, and in Bengali culture, sometimes women are kind of the, you know, like Debbie, boss in the family. 
Um, anyway, jokes apart. Jokes. <laughs> if you can joke with your boss, imagine how good your boss is, right? She she makes your workplace wonderful. Um, so, all right, back to the seriousness. Uh, so, I see in various communities, including some of my own, there is resistance to the first level, that is the unlearning part I'm talking about. And especially what um, uh, I mean by that in collective societies, collectivism, uh, the culture of collectivism that we Bengalis come from, for example, or many Indian culture comes from. Um, so what would be your take on how to encourage um, this in more collective cultures uh, or in communities such as ours? Newcomers, let's take newcomers communities. Unlearning can be very, very challenging to some extent, as we talked about the invisible backpack. Yeah, Is it too, too much of no, a question? I was thinking about how, like say, after the merger of George, George Floyd, a group of women of South Asian background were all in healthcare in some way, one of the actions that we said we need to take is as a group, look at how we fit into these anti-black racist structures and what are we doing to, to perpetuate that. So I do think, you know, that first step is actually recognizing that there could be a problem. And that's sometimes the hardest step. If you're, if people don't acknowledge that there's an issue, then it's, it's hard to move forward. But even if there's that spark of, you know, can we collectively talk about our role and what roles we might be playing? And I'm not sure if you're meaning kind of newcomers coming together to, to look at something like that or how others might be treating certain groups and people who, who come to the province. But I think like that, that dialogue piece is often, I think that first step of the unlearning. Um, and I do think though, it does take that initial, it takes some kind of spark, like someone needs to, to start that, that process and it can happen at a very, you know, small group level. It can happen as an individual. It can happen as a group. It can happen as a, as a workplace. Um, but I think that's that first step to saying like, this is something we need to do. Let's start somewhere. Let's start those conversations. You can, there's all kinds of readings and different things you can use as a starting point. And then you start to look at all the different ways in which you might be part of those structures. Like thinking of myself in public health, like say through the pandemic, I was part of all kinds of structures that created conditions that made people's lives incredibly hard. And I know I'm part of that. And I, I really struggled with that. You know, I was part of border measures, which is a very weird thing to, to be like thinking about how I'm part of like excluding people from being able to, to travel and, and, Everyone, I think, maybe not to that, hopefully not that ex extreme in some ways, but, you know, we all are part of those pieces. And if we think about it each day, we are part of those structures that are sometimes, you know, quite harmful. So I think it, it's really deliberately interrogating, like whether it's in your workplace or in your family, like in every space, we are part of creating these structures. And so coming together to think it could be a conversation with your child about like, how do, how do we make decisions in our family? Or it could be, you know, in your workplace, like how are we um, even designing how we sit in our workplace? Like there's every single piece, you know, it's sometimes a bit overwhelming, but you could pick, you know, very actively. These are what we want to look at. We started, I mentioned the Cabot Trail Writers Festival. We started with um, just reading a few pieces and then it changed how we organized the festival. And then we had feedback from authors that said, you know, we felt incredibly safe at this 
festival. It's, you know, and getting feedback like that makes you realize, okay, those changes do make a difference. And we, we have done that. Um, but yeah, sometimes within your own communities can be, I think, some of the hardest places because these are the people you're often closest to. Um, and to have those conversations can be really challenging. Hi, thank you so much for this session. And it's uh, so good to see uh, Bengali people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can start our own little. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I'm also from uh, Bangladesh. And uh, so interesting to have this session. And I have learned so much. And I have uh, been able to uh, change my perspective and uh, learn about many things from your session. Um, so one of the things you have mentioned, uh, and also one of the things I've seen in general, when representing uh, people from uh, different colors is that uh, mostly in workplaces, um, like I f uh, like first uh, the priority is uh, for the um, for the people from uh, back, uh, black community. And uh, I've seen the representation of uh, black people. For example, the uh, example I've sh uh, shown from intersectionality is uh, how uh, like there is difference from like um, white women. There is a difference of experience from white women to uh, black women for intersectionality. But uh, like uh, for the uh, representation and also in the coin that you've uh, shown is that it was black versus not black. So um, for the uh, racialized people, for example, people from different other uh, ethnic backgrounds, except for indigenous people, and uh, for example, people of brown skin or maybe other races. So uh, I was wondering what kind of uh, initiatives are you uh, taking as in, uh, as in the uh, medical or healthcare industry to promote um, in, promote the intersectionality or uh, racism for people uh, people from uh, different um, different many different uh, colors uh, of people in color not from not just black communities for example uh, for intersectionality people uh, brown um, people of one religion can have different experiences from people from another religion so uh, or people uh, straight brown people can have different experience from uh, the people from the 2SL LGB LGBTQ uh, A plus communities. So what kind of uh, initiatives are you taking in the healthcare industry to promote uh, intersectionality as a whole um, uh, from the from only uh, from the representation of people from other uh, uh, other backgrounds uh, from different countries? Yeah, I think it's it's just the overall point that we, we try to put these categories together that don't encompass experiences in any kind of comprehensive way when you need to check off, you know, one box on a on a list of, of different identities. And those identities themselves are often kind of socially constructed. So we've created these entities that people need to put themselves in. At the same time, often people want to be able to identify because they want to be able to, to you know, describe an issue, describe a problem, describe something they're really proud of and they want it to, to be reflected. Um, a few things that I've been involved in, say an, a pandemic example was initially we did not collect any information around in a systematic way around people's you know, racial and ethnic background. Um, 
we changed that during the pandemic. It was always optional. People could answer or not. Um, but at least to be able to give us a bit more understanding to to be able to see how people of different backgrounds and you could choose more than one option, knowing that there's often you know people, especially with racial background, it might be multiple different identities. So that was one piece of it. Um, one of the health authorities I'm part of, we're trying to start with gathering that information about staff to understand like what are the different identities that you may identify with and then understanding, you know, what does that mean to you in the workplace and, you know, are you feeling supported with with those different roles it's a, is another piece of it. Um, I think some specific examples, again, I've only worked in Newfoundland Labrador during the pandemic, so all my, all my uh, examples are pandemic related, but it did come kind of from pushing from community around um, a lot of services and vaccines and other pieces were most accessible if you had a health card. And Arcanel and others had done a lot to say, you know, people who are often in a whole mix of racialized backgrounds as well as undocumented or don't have a health card for different reason. Um, those are people who are having a lot of trouble getting, you know, when there was a vaccine passport, when you wanted to register for a vaccine. So um, trying to change that, there were some pieces put in place. It wasn't as as easy as I might have liked it to be in the end, but trying to recognize that there are, you know, very different groups trying to access, you know, pandemic COVID-19 related services. And because of these different identities being, you know, a student who doesn't have a, a health card. And on top of that, also being from a racialized background, they are being put in a much more challenging situation when they may also be at higher risk of, of getting the infection. Um, those are a few examples I can I can think of off the top of my head. It's that it's the balance of trying to design things in a way that will be helpful, but realizing you will never accommodate every single different identity, but how do you still do it in a way that's sensitive and nuanced and, and recognizing that people come from different places? I think that's something we're all trying to, to figure out how to do well, because we can't just put people into boxes. Uh, we have one more question oh. <laughs> here. She just has a sh very short right. question. I'll try to make it short. Um, it's kind of in response to a lot of what the other questions were about, so I didn't want to like hold it until later. Um, but that coin slide you presented was really interesting, because I think it like, can you go back to that for a sec, if possible? Thank you for your presentation as well. <laughs> um, this I've never seen this before, but when I was looking at it, it, it almost seems binary in, in and of itself, mm -hmm. where it's, it's you know, it, there's just two sides of the coin, but we don't really get that intersectionality integrated into it. So even if you just take one of them, the purple line, black versus not black, well, what about everything else in between, right? And we, are, we should all be part of these conversations, regardless of where you're from, what your background is, whether or not you have all of that privilege. And that's something that's been kind of frustrating me is that I want to be involved, I want to contribute, and I don't want to take up other people's time or space or discredit what they're saying either. But at the same time, I sometimes don't feel seen when we have this binary dichotomy of white versus black or cis versus not cis or what have you. So that's kind of... Yes, but I want to no, <laughs> taken from from both of you. I think that's a really I, helpful observation. And if either of you have good models that you have seen, I know there's. I, I have another one that I like that is much more complicated. Um, but maybe it has to be complicated because it isn't a binary, as you've said. Um, Justin, Justin, Doctor, uh, that's not defense or anything, but um, I think that when you see things on a scale and says uh, black, non-black, I don't think specifically they're leaving out people from Bangladesh or Emma or, you know, people from Asia. I think they use it as a model 
and they use it as a model. And I think it's because if you're black, usually you're more often targeted than any other group. Um, and stats will show that. But I don't think it means that they're disregarding any other race or anything else. I think they're grouping it all together. No, and maybe just to add to that, I think the history of people who are black and people who are indigenous in this country is a specific history that does also need to be acknowledged as much as other groups. Definitely, we need a better way to, to represent that. But um, yeah, I think often, especially black history is often not known by many in the country and indigenous history is clearly a very specific um, area that I do think is sometimes indigenous and, and non-indigenous is a binary we do need to, to think about. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dutt. And one of the things that I just wanted to uh, acknowledge was that today we, we've heard the word unlearning quite a bit since this morning. And I don't think, uh, or, or I don't think somebody said it, but it's not unlearning specifically from one group. I think it's unlearning from every single human being um, of changing our ways of thinking. So um, I just wanted to put that out there because I noticed that that was uh, um, talked about for a bit. Um, last year, I think Dr. Bolo is not here, but he last year's presentation, Dr. Bolo did talk about resume whitening, um, changing your name to fit into the mainstream. So that was, uh, we had that discussion last year. So it's interesting, Dr. Dutt, that you covered a little bit of that. Thank you for listening to Global Frequencies, Diverse Province, Diverse Voices. This program is presented by the Association for New Canadians, ANC, with funding from the Government of Canada and Government of Newfoundland and Labrador. The Association for New Canadians, ANC, is an organization that has helped refugees and immigrants to Newfoundland and Labrador for more than 40 years. The ANC delivers programs and services that support all aspects of newcomer integration, ranging from settlement information and orientation to language learning, skills development, and employment. If you are a newcomer in Newfoundland and Labrador and need our help, contact us, ancnl.ca. See you next time.